Last week, we began to look at the fall of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. And this morning, we have the response to this judgment in the form of dirges or laments from three classes of people, the kings, the merchants, and the mariners. This passage is very important, as I mentioned last week, in that it confirms the economic interpretation of Babylon that we've been assuming and defending throughout the whole series. And in doing so, it presents us with some serious food for reflection and thought. We're going to look at the text from Revelation 18, beginning of verse 9, under three headings. They're there in your outline on the back inside page. The kings, the merchants, and the mariners. I'll just note briefly the mariners. So first then, the kings. Revelation 18, verse 9. The kings of the earth are those, the text says, who committed immorality with Babylon, who we have argued is first and foremost Rome. These political rulers then have fornicated with the economic system of the empire. They have worshipped Caesar, and they supported and worshipped the patron deities of the trade guilds. To them, it's just simple patriotism. It's just the cost of doing business. And in addition to their power, they've gained wealth. The text says they lived in great wealth or luxury with her. So, Babylonian harlots always make the political class rich. This is not necessarily the case, but it's virtually always the case. It's certainly the case here and often the case in our day. That they not only make the political class rich, they make them filthy rich. And these kings will, with great intensity and emotion, weep and wail over Rome when they see the smoke of her burning because they're forlorn suitors and they've lost their lover. It's important to see here that Rome is judged, Babylon is judged, not simply because she martyrs the saints but because she heads a vast worldwide system of economic exploitation. And in verse 10, these kings stand afar off, probably hoping to avoid Babylon's fate. They sense that they're implicated, so they back up. And they're right. They stand afar off in horror, the text says, in fear of her torment, knowing that her torment means their own imminent loss. And so in verse 10, they begin with their dirge. Woe, woe. O Babylon, city of power. The lamentation is because of their own loss of standing and power. Notice they're explicit about it. You are a city of power. And so the sorrow here, if it needs to be said, the sorrow of these kings is completely ungodly and self-centered. There's no repentance here. And at the end of verse 10, they say, in one hour, your doom is come. The judgment is swift and severe and devastating. That's all I want to say about the kings. The second point is the crucial point of this text. One of the great and important passages in the book of Revelation. And it's about the merchants. Verse 11 says, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. Now, this is... I mentioned last week they sort of came into view there, but now the focus is on these merchants, various businessmen. 
who would be, in many cases, citizens of the exporting cities that would trade, largely export trade, with the city of Rome. And so these are the ones who, in many instances, either own or produce the products that are in view here in the text. And so here, what we've said throughout this economic basis for their mourning becomes open and explicit. They weep over Babylon because her judgment means, the text says, no one buys their cargo anymore. Their market is gone. Rome will no longer be consuming vast quantities of goods from all over the world. And this entails that these merchants, this business class, will suffer devastating economic judgments. And so in verse 12, we come to a list, an astonishing list, really, an accurate and revealing list. It's remarkable, the content packed into this list by John. It's a list of the cargo that the world's merchants exported to Rome before her fall. And I want to look at this cargo in some detail. But before I do, I want to make a couple of introductory remarks about it. This is a place where the list suggests a connection to the churches on the ground in Asia Minor. The churches in the ground in Asia Minor, would not have many kings and political authorities in them. But there would be a significant group of merchants who would be tempted to compromise with this idolatrous trade system. And the system of trade was bound up with the system of emperor worship. There's no way one could or would easily extricate oneself from it. I want to cite here the, the Roman historian Suetonius Suetonius says this about an incident that took place at at the port of Petuli near Rome, a port for the city of Rome. He says, as Caesar Augustus sailed by the Gulf of Petuli, it happened that from an Alexandrian ship which had just arrived there, the passengers and crew, clad in white, notice this language, clad in white, crowned with garlands and burning incense, lavished upon him good wishes and the highest praise, saying that it was through him, through Augustus, that they lived, and through him that they sailed the seas, and through him that they enjoyed their liberty and their fortunes. The Roman historians and writers were very clear that it was Caesar and Caesar's favor that protected the seas and by Caesar that they traded on the seas. I'll give you a couple more examples. In the first century, Caesarea Maritima, which was the principal Mediterranean port of Palestine, right? it features a temple right at the port built by Herod the Great. It'd be the first thing that sailors and traders would see when they arrived. There's another port of Rome called Ostia where archaeologists have dug up some 40 or 50 temples and trade guild halls. These these ports of sea would have trade guilds. The the businessmen, the merchants would get off the sea, and there would be banquet halls. There would be little places where you could worship the emperor. So there is a bond from port to port across the seas between Rome and Babylon and the merchant trading class. Second, note this. This is a list of exports here to Rome. These are goods 
that the capital city consumes to maintain her extravagance, her luxury, her incredible ostentatious materialism. By the way, just as an aside, this is yet another reason why Babylon cannot be Jerusalem in the first century. This list alone proves that Babylon is Rome. The sheer length of the list suggests the voracious nature of the appetite to consume. There's a famous landfill. It's still there today. It's known colloquially as Potsherd Mountain. It's some 220,000 square feet, but it was certainly bigger in antiquity. It contains nothing but containers and pottery and the vessels that the various foodstuffs were delivered to Rome in. It's a monument to the swallowing, consuming power of the city as it consumes the goods of the empire. You can see it today. The famous first century Roman writer Pliny listed in one of his works the 27 most costly items in the world of his day. 18 of those items are on this list. 18 of them. There's an ancient Jewish writer, it's become almost proverbial, who, who said that 10 measures, God bestowed 10 measures of wealth on the world. Nine of them were consumed by the early Romans. One was left for everybody else. So with that brief introduction, I want to look at the list. Gold, first on the list, it would be imported mainly from Spain, where the mines had become the property of the state. It was one of the main signs of obscene wealth, as it is today, of the rich families in the city of Rome in the first century. Ceilings of houses were made of gold. Shoe buckles were made of gold. Even their slaves were adorned in gold. One ancient historian speaks of the fact that any land which has gold became Rome's enemy. And they had better be ready, he says, for the sorrows of war because the Roman quest for gold is insatiable. If you've got gold, Rome's coming to get it. Silver, also from Spain, was used extravagantly in the capital city. Silver couches, silver baths, silver serving plates. Precious stones would come from India. And this indicates that Rome had a prosperous trade not only to the west, but also to the east. Pliny, again, thought that the Roman love for jewels had become sort of violent passion. They were worn by women and men. Pearls. Pearls came from the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf and from India. And they were valued only after the diamond. You might know Nero famously scattered pearls. Just took them and scattered them among the people of Rome. And these pearls would often be swallowed, dissolved in vinegar at banquets, just because they were so expensive. And so you've got these various precious metals and stones, and from there John moves to textiles, fine linen, used for the clothing of the rich, imported from Egypt or Spain or even parts of Asia Minor. Purple cloth, colored by an expensive dye created from shellfish in the Mediterranean. The dye was more expensive than any garment. And the price of these purple cloths was 
exorbitant, and it was a great status symbol of wealth. Again, Pliny, who's very helpful here, speaks of Rome's insane craze for purple clothing. And because the dyes from the pearls, the dyes for the cloth and the dyes for the pearls both came from shellfish, Pliny, kind of tongue-in-cheek, ironically said, shellfish are our greatest source of moral corruption. Silk. Silk would come at great expense from China. And laws had to be passed to prohibit, as effeminate, the wearing of silk by men. Nevertheless, Josephus, who's the great first century Jewish historian, mentions Roman soldiers dressed in silk at the various triumphs of the Roman generals. Scarlet cloth also made with a dye. Note note that the opening section of this list, with its golden, its jewels, its pearls, its purple, and its scarlet linen, recalls the picture, the vivid picture of the Babylonian harlot in chapter 17. She, Rome, is the consumer of these goods. She puts them on to continue her seduction of the kings and the merchants. She extracts the goods from her clients, and then she wears the goods. So the list continues with woods, ivory, and other metals. The scented wood or citron wood would come from North Africa. Tables made with various woods, became one of the most extent, you know, the most uh, expensive fashions of the well-to-do. Some of these tables would be the equivalent of between $2 million and $5 million in today's money. If they were made with the best woods, that's what you could get for them. Ivory was so popular in Rome that its consumption contributed to the extinction or the near extinction of the Syrian elephant. It led to the depletion of elephants in North Africa and thus to more trade with India to satisfy Rome's demand for ivory. And it was used for everything imaginable. And it often replaced wood, for example, on the legs of tables. You got a table, it's a $2 million table, then you, you can up the price of it by having the legs carved out of ivory. Juvenile the, the very witty Roman satirist complained. He said, nowadays, a rich man can't enjoy his dinner unless his table is supported by a leopard carved in solid ivory. John continues, lists more wood products. And then comes bronze, probably a reference to works of art made from Corinthian or Greek bronze. Again, inordinately expensive. Iron would be used for cutlery, vessels, armaments, and would come from Spain or Asia Minor. Marble. Marble would come from Africa, Egypt, and Greece. You may know Augustus' famous boast. Augustus said, I found Rome brick, I left Rome marble. He found Rome brick, left it marble. It was used for buildings, statues, all sorts of things in the palaces of the rich. Pliny says that the use of marble in a private residence is absurd and morally indefensible. Apparently he's never been to America. 
Never been to Manhattan. Again, as with the gold mines, these major marble quarries were brought under imperial control in the first century. Essentially a statist arrangement so that they could be focused completely on supplying the needs of Rome. So John moves on to spices and perfumes. Cinnamon would come from South Asia or East Asia. And it was valued as incense. It was used in medicines, perfumes. It was used as a condiment in wines. Spice, which is next on the list, refers to this fragrant spice from South India used aromatically. And incense came from various parts of the East, and it was used for religious rites, also for just simply perfuming the homes of the rich, also used extravagantly at the funerals of the wealthy. Myrrh would come from what is today Yemen, and from Somalia as well, and it refers also to expensive prized perfumes. Frankincense would come from southern Arabia, and it would be used like the other perfumes. Pliny, again, weighs in on the perfumes. He complains about the abundant use of these perfumes at funerals. He says, quote, The Romans give the perfumes to the gods a grain at a time, but pile them up in heaps in honor of their own dead bodies. So, the list, again, this astonishing list, one wonders, did the Spirit just tell John this? Or did John just know the import-export trade of the city of Rome? Did everyone know it? Did all the prisoners on that little shipping lane island that John was in in the Aegean Sea know this? In any case, John knows what Rome is doing. And now he moves to food products. Wine, which would come from Sicily or Spain. And the wine trade, as you might guess, they're Italians after all. The, The wine trade with Rome could be quite profitable. Vines were cultivated at the expense of corn because the wine trade was more lucrative. By the way, there may be an allusion to this way back in chapter 6 when the seven seals are opened and the four horses come come riding out. The third horse is the horse of famine. And one of the things that that horse says when he rides forth is and, and, and declares that there's going to be a famine on the land is he says, but do not touch the oil or the wine. And so self-conscious choices were made to cultivate the wine. Oil could be supplied locally, but it would also come from Africa or Spain. Fine flour would be imported for the wealthy from Africa, although it could be made in Italy as well. Then John mentions wheat. So here, again, we should notice something. While the list is focused on luxury items, it's mainly luxury items, wheat, oil, and wine were staples. So at this time, the city of Rome has between 800,000 and a million people. And, for example, its corn supply, just its corn supply, was a vast economic operation. Most of it would come from Egypt or other parts of Africa. Thousands of ships were involved in the Roman corn supply. And thus, thousands and tens of thousands of merchants would be involved. And the whole enterprise was increasingly supervised and controlled by the state, though the merchants continued to run it. Now, these shipping men, 
right? These merchants would get special deals from the empire, right, to divert their trade to the city. They would get insurance coverage from the emperor. They would get tax breaks. They would get special pricing. In some cases, they could get the gift of Roman citizenship. It's a vast patronage system. So the government would buy large supplies of, say, corn, for example, and then distribute it as the free, very, also very well known, the famous Roman corn dole. It's an ancient form of welfare. And this shows us that the population of Rome, the harlot city, survives at the expense of the rich, of their draining of the basic resources from the rest of the empire. John mentions next cattle and sheep. These were not for the games, nor were they likely to be for food. Beef was not considered a delicacy. These would be used for the large ranches, a feature of the Roman aristocracy, for labor and for breeding purposes, and in the case of sheep, for wool. Horses, probably for racing in the circus, would come from all over. Expensive horse-drawn carriages were used by the wealthy. So this whole list, this whole remarkable list of Roman excess and self-indulgence goes roughly, roughly in descending order of value. And what comes at the end, slaves, that is human souls, indicates the callous inhumanity of the harlot city. Slaves are listed last. John classes them with cattle and sheep and horses because that's the way they would have been viewed by the harlot city. They're a form of livestock, though John reminds us that they are indeed human souls, the bodies and souls of men. This last item and the recitation of this whole list. Remember, what is this list? It's part of the mourning in public of the merchants. It indicates that John views the whole Roman economy as one monstrous piece of corruption. The wealth of the Roman elite has been built on the exploitation of the provinces and especially on the backs of slaves. There were 10 million slaves in the empire at this time. Roughly 20% of the whole Roman Empire was in some form of slavery. And so economic life was unthinkable without it. The system was dependent on the full supply of slave labor. There's more that could be said, but that's the list. And so the lament of the merchants continues in verse 14. Verse 14. The fruit, that is the luxuries we just looked at, the fruit which you longed for is gone from you. All of Rome's delicacies, her costly things, her bright and her glittery things, all of her fraudulent glory, they're all lost, never to be found again. And these merchants, just like the kings, back off. They stand far away in fear of her torment. And they pronounce their woes on the city in verse 16. The kings mourn because they lost power mainly. The merchants mourn because they see Babylon dressed up in their cargo. Again, verse 17 concludes, in one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. It's a sudden market collapse. You can lose all your wealth in one hour. The city 
is laid to waste, and she's now a desolate wilderness. John had said at the beginning, she's going to become a haunt for demons. And then the third group is the shipmasters, or the owners of the ships, as well as the sailors, all who labor in the sea trade, the group I called mariners. They lament at the end of this text, but they add no substantial new content. In all three cases, kings, merchants, mariners, there's no godly sorrow, there's no repentance, there's no self-examination, there's just self-indulgent sadness. So, this is a critique of Babylon, and I think it's very provocative for us to think about in our situation. Certainly, if the response of people asking me questions after last week's sermon is any indication... Uh, These texts are provocative. So I want to try and make a couple of connections to our world. Um, So the first thing I want to say here, though, is this. That this is hard. that That you can't simply just draw a straight line from this situation to our modern situation. Um, And that we can ask some questions, but that doesn't mean that I have the answers. Right? We have to ask the questions and wait and pray and think and discern. So, after last week's sermon, a number of people asked me some questions, and it became clear to me that I, wanted, that I needed to say that I wasn't making any concrete proposals. I'm just trying to provoke some thinking. So let me say a couple things here after this text. First, notice this. This is a statist economic system. The whore rides on the beast. Right? The, 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 the military might props up the Pax Romana, which Tacitus called peace through bloodshed. And the peace enables the commerce. We saw that in the quote from Suetonius. Right? I'm not making this stuff up. You can get Roman first century authors that will tell you this was an idolatrous system of emperor worship. So what we have here is a centralized economic structure. Not in any exhaustive way. This is not like the modern Soviet Union, where there's a group of bureaucrats in a gray building in Rome churning out five-year plans. But there are various levels of state-run controlled industries here. We saw that. The mines were taken over, the, the gold mines, the silver mines, the marble mines. Right? And this centralized order a political economic order, seduces the business class into fornication with the beast's harlot. That's what happens. In that regard, it has some similarities to a corporate welfare state, where through lobbyists and money, corporations get special deals, they fornicate with the harlot, which makes them very wealthy and supports the total state at the same time. To not see any relationship between this and that what I think to not be looking carefully. Second, the second thing to say about a text like this is it means that thinking about the economic order in which our lives are enmeshed is not optional. I frankly wish it was. But it isn't. Now, not everyone can do this, and, but the church does need people to do it. That's the important thing to see. As I mentioned last week, if you imagine these merchants being told that they're involved in an idolatrous economic order, what would they reply? They would probably reply, look, I'm just trying to make a living. I'm not an economic theorist. 
What do they care about where the goods come from or who's buying them? Or to what use they're being put? Or what exploitation might be involved in extracting the goods? Well, this passage says that we can't quite do that. That it, in fact, does matter. Again, this is not my natural inclination. But it matters where your stuff comes from. It matters who made it, who might have been exploited. It matters who's getting rich off it. We don't get to just opt out and say, hey, man, that's just the way the market works. And by the way, elite merchants and businessmen, they know where the stuff's made. (laughs) They know who's making it, and they know what they're paying the people who are making it. And remember, John has them in sight. In one sense, this is very important. I want to say this clearly. John does not have the ordinary person trying to grind a living out in sight in this text, right? He has the Roman elites, and he has the business class that fornicate with them in sight. He's not saying to the local guy trying to grind out a living in Ephesus, hey, you're in in my crosshairs here. Now, he does say to that guy, you cannot engage in idolatry. You cannot worship the emperor. You cannot burn any incense if the trade guilds require it. But the target is not just everybody, right? The target are certain classes of people who are getting very, very rich and who know what they're doing. Nevertheless, we are caught up in our own system for good or for ill. And it is making some of our elite class rich, very wealthy. And we need to think about how we might practically demonstrate the priorities and the values of the kingdom. Now, a couple of points on this that I think are helpful. One is, just because you can't know everything, I mean, no one can know everything, right? I worked for IBM for a quarter of a century. I don't know everything about how they manufacture their stuff or where they sell it. I don't even know most things. But because you can't know everything doesn't mean you can't know anything. Because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't do something. Because you can't implement a consistent policy across the board that would have you boycotting every company you don't like doesn't mean you couldn't perhaps pick a few out that are egregious and do that. Not that, I, not that I recommend that. I'm not trying to bind anyone's conscience. But the point is you often get all or nothing kinds of responses to this from people. Well, if we do this, then we'll have to do that, and then we'll have to do this, and then we'll have to do that, we'll have to do this, we'll have to do that, so I can't do this? It's like saying, because you can't overthrow every terrorist training camp in the world, you should not try and take any of them out. Because it's not logistically practical... For you to facilitate regime change in every monstrous regime in the world, you should never oppose any monstrous regime. So it's important not to fall into this kind of thinking that says, hey, I'm just a person. I can't know anything. There's not much I can do about it. And besides, it's a big, complex thing. We can't do everything, but perhaps, perhaps we can do some things. And very importantly here is this. These are very tough questions, and not everyone's going to agree. What's very important for our congregation is that there's charity and humility and patience and kindness. Remember, it's not implication with an evil company. That's not the problem. If that were the problem, no one could work anywhere. It's implication with an idolatrous system where you are forced to worship. Very few people are doing that in our situation, so I want to make that clear. Again, the text provokes us. So, 
two more things and then I'll stop. Two more quick applications. Third, certainly a text like this should make us realize that wealth per se cannot be treated as an unalloyed good. Right? There's a lot of propagandists that have convinced us that if a system creates a lot of wealth, it must ipso facto be spectacular. And so when you hear that sort of economic chatter, you should ask yourself what John the Apostle might think of that. Or what the Hebrew prophets might think of that. Or what one Jesus of Nazareth might think of logic that goes like this. Well, the system creates lots of wealth, therefore the system must be morally good. That's at least a place to start. If we can't criticize our own system, we have no chance of escaping its seductions. Right? No one escapes the seductions of things that they're a cheerleader for. So the last thing here is you can desacralize wealth. The Romans, the ancient Romans, thought wealth was something sacred almost. But it has to be stripped of its, of its luster. So how do you do that? Well, you do it the way many of you are already doing it. You, you, give it, you give to the poor. You give to the suffering church. You display generosity. You stop clinging to money. You demonstrate that your treasure's in heaven. So the situation we're in is complex. It is. But remember this. The Roman situation was also a vast and complex web. Ordinary people do, and they shall get caught up in the assumptions of Babylon. People get swept up in this stuff. Right? Famously, of course, Hannah Arendt, who did a lot of work on totalitarianism in the middle of the 20th century, um, wrote, the, wrote the book called Eichmann at Jerusalem and, and, and made famous the phrase, the banality, the sort of ordinary boringness of evil, right? Because, because of her work with accountants in Nazi death camps. They're just accountants. They don't know what's going on. They don't know where the trains are running. What, what are they supposed to do? Figure out everything that, you know, they just have a family. They just live in the suburbs somewhere and they just have a job. That's all they're doing. So people get swept up in stuff because... They don't ask questions. Now, again, we have to be careful with these sort of illustrations, but it is true. Ordinary people implicate themselves. This is why the urgent part of this text and the urgent call of the Apostle Paul to, the, to the, even the first century church in Corinth was flee from her, come out of her. In other words, the spirit of Babylon in your own mind and heart is something you have to flee from. Right? And it's hard to flee from it if we don't see its seduction, if we don't see that we can be sucked into the power and the wealth and the greed and the consumerism of the age. Remember, the whole text was opened with, come out of her, my people, come out of her. And that calls for wisdom and humility and self-examination. So, I offer these things not as a prophet or the son of a prophet at this point. But faithfulness requires us to at least engage the task. And that requires us to pray. Pray that the Lord gives us wisdom. Because there will be more Babylons. And there are Babylon-like systems already in the earth. And when they fall, you are not called to be among the mourners. We saw that at the end of this text, but we'll see it next week. You're called to be rejoicing with the saints. Because the fall of Babylon is not the time for self-indulgent dirges by those who've been implicated in Babylon's web. It's the time for rejoicing and glorifying God who vindicates his saints. Amen.